I do have these, which have a little Janet Jackson thing here. Janet Jackson slash B and Q. Yes, it's, it's not quite as uh, Janet <laughs> yeah. Jackson as indeed Janet Jackson. Do you do it with one tit out? With just the one, yeah, just the one. <laughs> Standard issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 241 of the Standard Issue Podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan and on Saturday night I accidentally went to Camden. I'm Hannah Dunleavy and further to Mick's fact, who's going to tell this story Mickey? Do you want to start? Well I'm intrigued so someone better better crack on. (laughs) So the accidental trip to Camden. Now, Hannah very kindly for my birthday, an early birthday present, took me to see Standing at the Sky's Edge at the National, the Richard Hawley musical by Chris Bush. It was excellent. It was indeed. Had a lovely time. Did a cry, had a sing, lovely stuff. And then we thought, let's just get on the bus back to King's Cross. And then we started chatting. And then I said, why are we on Camden (laughs) High Street? (laughs) (laughs) and we got off the bus about five stops after we should have got off the bus. The first thing I said when we got off the bus is, I'm too old for Camden. Yes, and then the next thing we saw was a woman staggering (laughs) along with an undressed sex doll. (laughs) So we were very much too old for Camden. So we waded our way through the crisp packets and piss to get to the and the pizza to get to the train station at Camden. It was fucking carnage, Jim. It was awful. It's terrible. And and then Hannah got herself involved in a brawl. <laughs> Did you? Well, all I can say is she I had was no very choice. slowly pushed towards the brawl <laughs> by an escalator and there was literally nothing I could do about it. Just as we were like I was maybe like two steps up from the bottom of the escalator. Suddenly, this woman fell backwards into me and then onto the floor and then shouted, you can't, you can't. And there was some scrambling. <laughs> and then I was on top of her, having to walk backwards up the steps of the escalator onto Mickey. And she had yep. a really, like, flowing dress on. And Mickey and I had just had a conversation Ooh. about what would happen if a bit of your clothing got caught. And we were like, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. It didn't, did it? She didn't make any effort to stand up. She's just lying down. She just sat there shouting, shouting cunt. Just lying down drunk. <laughs> I'm kind of trying to pick her up from behind by whatever I can grab hold of. And then some guy pulls her up. And then she goes over after this bloke. And then people started punching each other in the face. And it was <sighs> drama. Fucking hell, Camden. So much drama. I hate Camden. I've always fucking so hated Camden. Drama. We didn't go there on purpose, and I was 100% correct. <laughs> I am way, way too old for that shit. Was it just I don't all mean right? to be rude to the lady who had uh, an incident, but she was also yeah. too old for that shit. Uh-huh. What incident? Oh, the, the, the woman in the fight? The incident. The right, incident. okay. I thought you meant a different incident. I was like, has someone pissed themselves in this? Like, No, no. I would say to anyone who does fall down on an escalator that your next sort of action probably shouldn't be to just sit at the bottom shouting cunt you should probably get up <laughs> it was it was weird jen i was just moving in really slow motion towards this fight and there was nothing I could do about it. didn't we have a lovely time the night we went to camden <laughs> no and oddly we were going to go for a pint afterwards and we just decided not it was like beer contraception yeah, it really was what I'm about to tell you about my Saturday is a lot less exciting, <laughs> let me tell you. I'm Jen Offord and sweet potato brownies are nowhere near as shit as you'd think they might be. 
I wouldn't think they were shit. Oh, I yes. like a bit of a veg. You love a carrot right. cake. I do, but yeah. sweet potato brownies. I was like, what the fuck is this? Obviously, I chose to make them, but uh, I also choose for my daughter not to have refined sugar at this point in her life. It's the only thing I can be in control of, uh, so just let me let me have it. I'm sure it makes absolutely no tangible difference to her life outcomes, but we're, we're going to go with it. Yeah, sweet potato brownies. Lovely. Absolutely delicious. Quite heavy, not going to lie. She didn't eat one and sit on the floor and call you a cunt. <laughs> no, not yet. Uh, we're gearing up to it, but uh, yeah, not yet, thankfully. That's good stuff. Well done. Well done. Healthy choices all round, unlike the woman that we encountered. (laughs) Coming up, I talk to Rachel Casey, Director of Canine Behaviour and Research at Dogs Trust, about the cost of living crisis and how it is affecting pet owners. I chat to Jackie Honess-Martin, creator of the brilliant new ITV drama, Maternal, about dodgy temperatures, dodgy infrastructure and perceptions of the NHS. And in Jenny Off the Blocks, even Alex Morgan doesn't understand FIFA and she is not alone in that. And in Rated or Dated, a silver-haired mover and shaker has to share a hotel room with an over-enthusiastic snorer with hurty feet. A preview of Mickey and my upcoming holiday, maybe. But also, we're watching planes, trains and automobiles. Mickey, what do you think Rome's going to be like if that's what Camden was like? I tell you, for nothing for now, Dunleavy, that you keep your hands away from my pillows. (laughs) But first, legal drugs becoming illegal, illegal drugs becoming legal, cats and dogs living together. It's time for the Bush Telegraph. Cue Sting. Bush! Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph. Looking at the news and wondering whether The Last of Us is actually a vision of mushroom-based hope. <laughs> yeah. Is no. it making you scared of mushrooms? I'm a bit wary of mushrooms now. Not the news, no. The Last of Us. <laughs> <laughs> no, I can't say it is making me scared of mushrooms, but I, I did have a dream, a nightmare about it, as we discussed. I don't like those fucking things. Tendrils. Uh, Gary found a machine you can get for in your home where you can cultivate exotic mushrooms. And I was like, this just feels like the apocalypse waiting to happen. I'm not down with that. People shouldn't be trusted with this. So it's been a while since we've looked at America. And while we could have expected that, having kicked Donald Trump to the curb, things would be looking rosier for the country. The legacy of Trump continues to hang around like the stink of fox shit on a beloved pair of trainers. That sounds very personal, Hannah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Oh, yes. They went in the bin. I do love foxes, but waves fist. (laughs) Case in point, the Supreme Court's overturning of Roe v. Wade. Mm. But... For the zealots, making it way harder for millions of women to exercise their bodily autonomy wasn't enough. Now, anti-abortion groups are coming for mifepristone, the first drug in the abortion pill process, Mm -hmm. in a lawsuit filed against the FDA, which has approved the drug for 20 years. Do you know what the FDA is? Food and Drug Administration. Administration. Yeah. Yeah, or maybe association. They do shit like that. A Trump-appointed federal judge, Matthew Kaczmarek, will soon rule, potentially later this month, on a lawsuit which aims to prevent the use of what the US terms medication abortion. The decision could affect the whole country, even the 31 states where abortion remains legal. Medication abortion now makes up the majority of abortions obtained in the US. 
Anti-abortion advocates filed a lawsuit against the FDA. Oh, I've written it out in full there for no apparent reason. (laughs) Against the (laughs) FDA in November, claiming that, and I don't want to diminish their argument here, women's health, something, something, babies, blah, blah, blah. (laughs) That seems like a fair representation. Too fair, too fair. (laughs) The FDA has responded, arguing that a ban will adversely affect women. Oh, no shit. It will adversely affect the companies manufacturing the drug and national confidence in the FDA. It adds that a ban would set a dangerous precedent as companies will be reluctant to commit to manufacturing other vital drugs if they, or vital elements of them, can be banned by a single lawsuit. Capitalism for the win. It seems to be the way, right, to get stuff through. Mm. Just like, oh, it threatens freedom. Wait a minute, what if it threatens capitalism? Uh Uh-huh, now they're listening. What if it threatens money and jobs? Yeah, maybe. Well, more news on this as it happens. For fuck's sake. Can I just join you in a for fuck's sake? Because for fuck's sake. Well, it's been a hot minute since I had a pop at the spaff-speckled cock knuckles in charge of this country. (laughs) It's not. It was just last week. And yet here we are. We're still so much to choose from. But yeah, let's talk about the continuing barbaric attitude to people seeking asylum in this country. The gist from the government is, look... All we're doing is clamping down on people applying for asylum if they got into the UK illegally while making sure we close down all legal routes to get into the UK. I'll keep my reaction short. (laughs) I mention this now because, well, people seeking asylum are getting fucked over by this country on a daily basis. But as I'm sure you've seen on the news, two catastrophic earthquakes struck Turkey and Syria on February the 6th leaving more than 35,000 people dead and millions displaced. Millions. In Mm. Syria alone, as many as 5.3 million people may have been left homeless by the earthquake. That is a huge number and comes to a population already suffering mass displacement. A week on, hundreds of thousands of people are sleeping in the open in often sub-zero conditions. We want to help, right? Yeah, we want to help. I have chucked some cash at the people on the ground doing life-saving incredible work because surely no one could look at what's happening and not imagine how devastating it must be to be there, not put themselves in the shoes of people who now only have the shoes they were wearing when this happened, not read the heart-yanking story of a woman buried alive with her newborn son for four days and think they need to be able to head somewhere safe and warm. Not here, though. The UK government has no plans to introduce an immigration scheme to enable earthquake survivors in Syria and Turkey to join relatives in Britain, a spokesman for Prime Minister Rishi Sunak has said, and there will be no new visa scheme in response to the disaster. So they are sending aid. The UK government has sent a lot of money, um, tents and various things, but there's no visa scheme and right now it is money not clothes or care packages that is needed so if you can spare a few quid the disasters emergency committee is running an appeal as is care international the red cross and choose love we really do just you know make right tits of ourselves on the world stage don't we in it heartless tits on the world stage so mick i've got some news i think it's good news others might not agree But let me tell you the facts and then you can all decide for yourself. Facts, Hannah. Yeah. Lovely. (laughs) Facts from Australia, Mickey. From Australia. Down under. Incredible. Where psychiatrists will soon be able to prescribe MDMA and psilocybin 
to patients with PTSD or treatment-resistant depression. What's psilocybin, I hear you ask? It's the active ingredient in magic mushrooms. Do I need to say what MDMA is? Delicious? No. Um... (laughs) (laughs) Ecstasy is MDMA. Street name, ecstasy. Both drugs were used experimentally decades ago to treat depression and eating disorders before being criminalised. Reaction to the surprise announcement by the Therapeutic Goods Administration has been mixed. Who would have thought we'd have been talking so much about like the FDA and now the (laughs) TGA? Who would have thought it? The Guardian quoted Dr. David Caldicott, a clinical senior lecturer in emergency medicine at Australian National University, as saying that it had become abundantly clear that a controlled supply of both MDMA and psilocybin can have dramatic effects on conditions often considered refractory to contemporary treatment. That's actually quite a complicated way of saying this. He's saying it's a good thing. He also saying it will be of particular benefit to returned servicemen and women. Mm-hmm. The article also quoted cognitive neuropsychologist Professor Susan Russell from Swinburne Centre for Mental Health as saying she had, quote, a significant degree of caution about the decision and that further research was needed. Talking of research, I had a little look to see if there was any sex disaggregated data available. Yes, mate. Yes, mate. Go, Hannah. Yes, please. And I found an article in the MIT Technology Review suggesting that clinical trials on the use of ketamine, MDMA and psilocybin mushrooms to treat depression, substance abuse and a range of other mental health issues showed that they were of particular benefit to women. Oh, well, it's never going to go through then, is it? (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Sorry. So for those who may remain unconvinced, why do I class this as good news? Well, as many of you already know, I think drugs should be dealt with as a health issue rather than a criminal issue. And this goes some way to achieving that. Agreed. Secondly, I think it might in the long term reduce dependency on legal drugs, which is the hidden face of drug addiction. And lastly, because studies show it appears to work for many people. And while I get that a lot of the general public might find the use of street drugs unpalatable, I find it way better than the alternative Canada will soon be offering people with treatment-resistant depression or PTSD, which is euthanasia. Yeah, I mean, give me some NDMA instead of (laughs) some suicide pills. Yeah, totally. Um, I did really enjoy your use of the phrase street drugs there, Hannah. I don't know why, but it tickled me to hear you say street drugs. (laughs) (laughs) Well... I don't know how else you'd... Illegal drugs. There's only so many times I can say illegal without me falling over it. It was yeah, a joy to like me. I, I don't need you to say it any other way. I just need you to keep saying it. Street drugs. I didn't call it very the cool. Mandy. <laughs> <laughs> Mandy for everybody. <laughs> yeah, so while we get on with that Mandy, more news next time. <laughs> well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week where I am going to repeat myself because history repeats itself and we learn nothing. A certain history that repeats itself or two to three times a week and yet seemingly takes a hell of a lot of folk by surprise every time is a man murdering his female partner or ex-partner. And you know, I'm still surprised. I'm still Mm. surprised that every time this happens, it's described as An isolated incident. I'm surprised that every time this happens, the man who murdered his wife, his ex, his kids, is described as good, as polite, as handsome, as really into his tennis. (laughs) Oh, fucking hell. 
isolated incident. Can I? Sorry, can I just stop you briefly and say what that basically means is he's never murdered his wife and kids before. Mm, mm. And in some cases, Hannah, that's not even true. <laughs> Don't even get me started. <laughs> or as we saw in the Daily Mail last week about the murder of Emma Patterson and her daughter Letty by their husband, father, respectively. Did living in the shadow of his high-achieving wife lead to unthinkable tragedy, which boiled my piss to a whole other level? Poor bastard. No, her career didn't lead to her death, you ridiculous cunts. George Patterson being a murderer led to Emma Patterson and her daughter's death. And unthinkable tragedy can get in the bin too. It's a tragedy, yes, but here's the rub. It's entirely thinkable. It mm. happens twice a week. Last year, it happened to 108 women. I think about this a lot. I talk about this a lot, and I'm absolutely not alone. Karen Ingala-Smith runs the Counting Dead Women Project. Professor Jane Monkton-Smith has figured out temporal sequencing for domestic homicide. That is a lot of thinking around unthinkable tragedies. Mm. I saw a lot of, well, what do you expect from the Daily Mail? And while this is a particularly egregious bit of victim blaming, with a big undercurrent of women know your place and you won't get murdered, it isn't just the Daily Mail. It is everywhere. It's like the world's least fun game of whack-a-mole. Call one news outlet out for a victim blaming headline, and sure, they'll change it. But another one pops up almost immediately. And as I've said before, this narrative is dangerous. I'm not someone who thinks words are literal violence. I think literal violence is literal violence. Mm -hmm. And I am sick to the back teeth of the poor murdery man storyline. This notion that a man snaps rather than plans. That a man kills his wife and kids in desperation rather than as a last means of control. That it is a good man caught in a moment of madness. It's total horseshit. And the more we feed it, the more society buys it. The more men get away with murder, it needs to stop. There need to be guidelines around reporting on domestic homicide in the same way there are guidelines around reporting on suicide. Agreed. Caroline Criado Perez's newsletter is a really heartbreaking read this week. She's focusing on male violence and she eloquently sums up the fear women feel because male violence is everywhere and could happen any time, that constant fear of never being safe. She addresses the men who she knows read her newsletter each week, whom she knows care but cannot possibly comprehend how these actions shape every woman's world. For you, it's a news story about an isolated bastard, she writes. For us, it's a reminder of how many of them are out there. It's a reminder of how much damage has already been done to us and how much worse it could still get. Yeah, that's well said. You and her, yeah. It just happens over and over and over again. And and I, I, we might have had this conversation before, so stop me if I've said this, but, you know, writing headlines, you train to write headlines where you put something in that headline that is going to make someone read that story. Yeah. And man kills wife. That in itself then becomes wallpaper to some people, mm. so they won't read it. So, you know, people will put a headline that says something like man killed wife after a nice night at theatre or something. Do you know what I mean? Or 50th mm. birthday party or whatever the hell it is. Just to put some what we call colour into it in the hope that someone would actually read it. But yes, I agree that there should be guidelines because, 
you know, that does damage. You, you can still put mm-hmm. man runs naked down straight after night of 50th birthday party, you know, with those stories. But these stories have to be dealt with differently. I agree. I'm joined by Jackie Honess Martin, writer and creator of the new ITV drama Maternal. Jackie, thank you so much for joining me today. First of all, I want to say congratulations. I binged the whole series of Maternal in a couple of evenings and I thought it was brilliant for reasons that we'll we'll go into. But to start off with, could you give the listeners a bit of background about what the show is about and how the idea for it came to you. Of course, and thank you so much for having me on the podcast. It's lovely to be here. So Maternal is about three medics, three mothers, who are returning to frontline NHS medicine from maternity leave. They've all just had children and they've taken sort of nine months or two years out and everything in between. And those three women are Mariam, who's a paediatrician, so she's going back to treat children, Catherine, who's a general and trauma surgeon, and Helen, who is an acute medic. And it's about how hard it is to be an NHS doctor at the moment and how hard it is to be a working mother and how we tend to face those things with uh, humour and resilience and a lot of joy. Certainly that's my experience of the women that I see going to work every day and it's definitely my experience of doctors. They have a very black sense of humour and they certainly find joy and curiosity and I think one of the biggest things I learned writing the show is that medicine is not a science it's an art and I think that's the thing that doctors really enjoy human beings they enjoy figuring out what's wrong with them and that's that's about getting to know a human and and who they are and and who people are as much as it is about knowing you know about bacterias or microbiology and the idea came to me uh, I went back to work when my first little boy was six months old I went back full-time And I just found it incredibly hard. I wasn't expecting to find it incredibly hard. I worked in a very inclusive industry. I returned into a job that I'd loved. And I beat myself up about how hard I found it quite a lot. And then I started talking to other people who were in similar situations or who'd been through similar things and realised that it wasn't just me and that there was a universal experience that women were having trying to go back into workplaces and structures that were not designed for women coming back from maternity leave or really for women with young families. And at that point, I went, oh, OK, well, instead of beating myself up, I'm going to get angry and write a play about it. <laughs> so I did. And eventually that play became maternal. I had two friends who really inspired me to write it, one of whom is a paediatric cardiologist. And she has a little boy who's the same age as my first little boy. So we were both going back to work at the same time. And I was listening to some of the stuff that she was doing and, and and really that's where maternal came from, was just thinking, God, I'm, you know, I'm so in awe of how this woman is coping every day. And one of my dearest, oldest friends of 20 years is an acute medic um, up here in Yorkshire where I live. And I got commissioned to write the show in March 2020 in the week that we were going into lockdown. So... Whilst I was trying to write episode one, I just figured, well, no one's really going to read it beyond TV industry people at this point because it was, you know, it wasn't, it was just in development. No one had greenlit it. So if the medicine's a bit shonky, it's not the end of the world. (laughs) So I got myself a few textbooks, 100 cases in paediatrics, 100 cases in surgery and 100 cases in acute medicine to set up on my shelf. And they give you a presentation and and an answer. I guess it's an exam kind of cramming tool. So I just took cases out of that. I watched a lot of ER with the subtitles on and just copied down stuff they were saying. And then I called my dear friends who were in the middle of coping with COVID and they were like, how much PP have you got on at the minute? Can you talk to me? Because I've got this question about (laughs) 
and they were extremely generous. And then when the show actually got greenlit and we were writing these episodes properly, we had three amazing medics work with us, that friend and then two others who were sort of found through various different recommendations in social media, Zoe Barber, uh, Kieran Rahim and Adrian Kennedy. And the best moment was when they looked at episode one and went, okay, so if we start with the bit where if Catherine did that, she would kill the patient. Should we rewrite that? Which is quite a relief because you don't want to think that you could just read a couple of textbooks and watch some ER and you're all good to perform, you know, cardiothoracic surgery. (laughs) So I think like a lot of what these women are going through will be very relatable. There's a moment in it where I'm watching it and I'm like, yep, yeah, and I and I don't think there will be a working mother watching who hasn't dropped their kid off at nursery knowing, like, oh, this is a little bit on the edge here. No, no that's like, fine. If I had one shit this morning, they might not have two more before three o'clock. It's going to be, yeah. Yeah, and you're like, are you oh, going to get that phone please, call? Please, please, please. Yeah. Yeah. I've got a meeting that I, I have to exactly. be okay to do today. God, like, let the cowpaw last, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Is that sort of why you wanted to use doctors? Because I was watching it thinking, like, oh my God, like, what do you do if you're a doctor in that situation? Yeah, I mean, it was that sitting at my desk and I was, my hardest moments when I went back to work was always, it still is actually when I'm tired. It's about four o'clock in the afternoon. There's something about, I live in Leeds, so it's usually pretty, it's like Mordor, you know, between sort of November and May. Uh, It's dark, it's bleak, it's grey. And it gets to four o'clock and I I used to just cry and I couldn't understand what was wrong with me until I realised it was, oh, it's just four o'clock. It's okay, let it out. <laughs> you have something to eat, have some more caffeine, get a bit of sugar, you can keep going. And I'd be sat there at my desk thinking, okay, just just respond to low stakes emails. That's all you've got to do is just like do some housekeeping, do some admin. And then I was speaking to this friend of mine who was talking about I was on call all weekend or I was, you know, I was I was in clinics today and I just thought, Well, you can't do that. You have to be on it the whole time. Mm. How do you do that when you're exhausted or when you're when you've had a dreadful night or when they're teething or when they're ill. And and I think there are a lot of jobs where you where you really do have to show up. And medicine is one of them. I was speaking to a friend of mine who's she's got a one year old and she was due in court the other day and her little boy had the same thing of, you know, just trying to hand him over at the nursery gate and them saying, No, he's still, you know, chicken pox still these pox are still <laughs> having having the row about how far on with chicken pox they yeah. are. And she's like, I'm due in court. I'm due in court at 9am. What do you want me to do with this child if you don't take him? So I think that is a universal experience for all mothers. And and yes, I absolutely chose medicine because um, I think it's the most extreme, because those are the people I'm most in awe of. And also because I think, I don't know about you, but when I had kids, I couldn't watch those missing drama no kid yeah. stuff no, it changes you I think fundamentally really does yeah. it really does fundamentally change you and I didn't want to believe that before I had children because I I don't know I, I I don't sort of subscribe to the idea that having children is the be all and end all of a woman's life at no. all um but it but it does that does change you I think I mean it ruins all of those dramas so don't have kids <laughs> keep enjoying enjoy missing and I thought god how do you go back and do pediatrics if suddenly the image of a broken child is your child and I remember speaking to my, my friend about this and, and saying, do you think it's changed you? And actually, I ended up putting a line into the show. It's hers. But she said, I used to feel pity for the parents. And now I can't hold it together if I have to break news like that to people. And ultimately, she thinks it's made her a better doctor. But it's certainly meant she's had to readjust those barriers. I think you work hard as a medic to build that wall up so mm. that you can do your job properly. And being a mother completely knocks it down. You have to build it in a completely different way. So the show surprised me in a lot of ways I think like you know if you're seeing an advert for it or whatever you might be thinking 
it's about quote unquote because obviously this is this is a feminist podcast so this is not, <laughs> not my view but um you might be thinking it's about women's stuff in inverted oh, commas women's issues yeah which you know it, it is but women's stuff is everyone's stuff but it's it is a lot deeper than I thought it was going to be. And I don't want to blow smoke up your ass here, Jackie. Oh, but... no, go on, it's fine, Jen. All right, I will do then. Carry on. <laughs> but it is one of the most nuanced, sympathetic, but also kind of like real examinations of the current state of the NHS and I think the people working within it. And I've never really seen this representation of the NHS on screen. And maybe it's because we have just sort of got to this point where we are now. It's really timely. Was it always your intention to sort of tackle these issues? Thank you, first of all. I'm really pleased that you took that from it. I think it was, but I think... And when I say this, I have to be really careful that I'm not disparaging to these writers because I think they're extraordinary, but I'm not James Graham. So I don't start from a place of, I mean, I'm assuming he starts from this place. So James, if you're listening, I apologise wholeheartedly and let's talk about sure it. Sure he but is listening. I, <laughs> um, like I, I don't start from a place of wanting to make a political point. I start from a place of seeing something that makes me angry or some conflict or something where I go, oh, that would be worse, like, you know, me sitting at my desk trying to write emails at four o'clock in theatre where nobody's... Well, if it, someone dies, it's a really bad day. So, yes, there was something I guess I wanted to say about the NHS, and that was that... And bear in mind, I started writing this at the beginning of March 2020, so we knew that what was happening with COVID was going to be seismic for our health service, and I think we also had a sense that it was going to kind of be a new chapter, that the way that we related to the NHS was going to be fundamentally different after this crisis had happened. And we were right about that, but we didn't know exactly how. And what I was seeing were my friends going into work with all of the stuff that was going on in their life and trying to hold it all together in the face of this extraordinary thing, sort of what they do every day, but but amplified and magnified and and when we were standing on doorsteps clapping and there were I, I used to get really cross about upset about those signs of you know, superheroes like they're not superheroes they're not yeah. superheroes they're human beings mm. who are sacrificing a huge amount to go and do this to go and face this thing and actually that's what they do every day and and you know it is what you sign up for as a doctor but I don't think you sign up for the system in the way that it is at the moment. I don't think you sign up for a system that's as broken as it is at the moment. I was listening to a podcast the other day about the railways, actually, thrilling as that was. And it was about this idea that lots of the railway franchises are failing because they ultimately rely on goodwill. So once drivers say, we're not doing that overtime anymore, the whole thing falls apart. I was running while listening to this podcast. And it's hilarious watching me run to a podcast because I start shouting in the middle of the park. I get so <laughs> exercised at what I'm listening to. <laughs> run out of breath, getting cross. But I was like, yes, that's, but that's the entire public sector. Yeah. It relies, and it's not just goodwill, actually. It's belief and generosity and hope. And the thing is people humans individuals can only do so much before those personal sacrifices they're making to keep those systems going just become too great and that's the political point of the show i guess if there is one and and it does feel very timely because we're recording this on the 1st of february when half the world mm. is going out on strike saying we can't do this anymore i want to sort of talk a little bit about attitudes towards the nhs which you sort of touched on there and gratitude for the NHS, because th this is not a comment about doctors or people who work within the NHS. I'm tremendously grateful that those people want to 
continue working in the NHS, particularly given you know the, where we are in the world at the moment. But about I think politicians in the system really, and I think that we almost fetishise the NHS. And we make it this sort of magical unicorn that can do no wrong. I think what maternal shows is that that is not the case. The system is like any, it's fallible, right? And things can and do go wrong. And it would be weird, really, if they didn't, to be honest. But we are grateful for it in a way that sometimes puzzles me a little bit. Because it's almost like, well, we're not America, so let's, (laughs) let's be grateful because we're not America. But we are a first world country... And having a healthy population makes good economic sense. The NHS isn't given to us out of, you know, just the goodness of politicians' hearts. And we're not given it. We do pay for it. We pay for it for our taxes. Because I think we worry so much that it's going to be privatised, basically. That we're like, we mustn't criticise it. And like the BBC, we mustn't criticise it because we're so lucky to have it. We don't want them to take it away from us. Do you think we actually help it by holding it up to this sort of magical standard? I think that's really astute. I think there's something that we have done with the NHS, which is, yeah, it's become a mythology in this country. And what that means is that politicians are terrified to touch it because they think that as soon as they start to try and reform it or as soon as they start to try and change it, people will hear we're privatising it or we're fundamentally changing something and people get very, have a very, very emotional attachment to the NHS, which is completely understandable because that is the organisation. Those are the individuals that you turn to at the most vulnerable points in your mm. life so and and my you know, i think all of us will have a story about about that that moment of vulnerability when the nhs or people within that organization held our hands and also i think i'm maternal is to some extent a part of that because we're telling stories about the nhs that keep that keep this mythology alive and look, I don't know how to fix it. I'm not a politician. I'm a storyteller. I can listen to a few podcasts and, you know, recount a couple of things that were said on it, but I, I don't know. And I guess it's that thing again, isn't it? And I'm really pleased you picked up on some of the themes in maternal that there is a direct conflict, isn't there, between sort of an individual and and the forces outside of them that are that are pushing down on them. But I think all all of the individuals in the system that is like the NHS are also fighting on, on all sorts of different angles from the from the inefficiencies of the system itself, from the inbuilt sexism within the system itself, from the from you know the the pressures of the of their colleagues, of the you know the equipment. It's it's all of that stuff. And I think for the women as well. And we don't sort of kind of this straight on in in season one, but it's a certainly a story I would like to go on and tell if we're if we're able to to build on season one. That is that I think medicine, like every other system, was built by men a hundred and fifty years ago for men. There's still so much. I'm sure your listeners are so familiar with all of the conditions and all of the problems that medicine doesn't even acknowledge are those things because they happen to women. I mean, Jesus, if men had to give birth, do you think they would still be pushing things the size of a watermelon out of I their genitalia. All the it's, time. It's medieval. It's medieval. It's if men had to do it, they'd have found a better way. Absolutely. So even the system of knowledge by which these women are trained, you know, are trained, and I'm not just talking about the way that you're trained or the or the systems, you know, the way that surgery is structured, which is hugely sexist and misogynist, it, it, even the knowledge that you're handed over is is about men it's about male bodies so so no it's not straightforward and, and it is nuanced and and also there are no villains I don't think I, I don't think that there's a wonderful character played 
beautifully by Matt Fraser in episodes one and three. So when Mariam has to go and find some help uh, from within the hospital, she goes and talks to, I can't remember exactly what they're called. It's not quite HR, patient safety and something or other. They have a very long title, which is real. You know, he's an antagonist in that scene and he's not, doesn't provide everything that Mariam needs in that moment. But even he, you know, there's a drama about him and all of the, all the difficulties, that, you know, the ways that he's not fully able to do his job properly and all the people that are leaning on him to do things differently so yeah it is nuanced there are no villains and there are no heroes it's just humans trying to do their best you know some of the issues you you touch on like burnout like psychological issues trauma of of the doctors working for the nhs at different levels and in particular there is one i think incredibly unsympathetic character who like that goes to being like you completely change your opinion on him in a heartbeat because you realize what he's dealing with because that is sort of covid related as well you know do you think that is an accurate kind of representation of what is happening to people in the nhs at the moment because one of the things that interested me about maternal was it was like i was watching something about something i'm so familiar with and yet at the same time it was a completely different perspective you're like oh shit is that is that a thing? I do, yeah. I think burnout and mental health is a massive issue for the NHS at the moment. I don't have the statistics next to me, but the amount of people who are leaving the NHS on a monthly basis is staggering at the moment. And, and that is mostly burnout. People just saying, I can't do this anymore. I can't work at this with, at this level of intensity. And also, I think that medics are trained, well, I know this from the research that I've done, medics are trained to be very resilient. It's all about the patients. It's not about you. You show up. You keep showing up. Whatever else is happening, you turn up for that shift. I'm certainly not the first person to observe that. I think if you go back and read any medical kind of biography, uh, Adam Kay talks about it beautifully in This Is Gonna Hurt. And I think he says that beautiful thing at the end, doesn't he? But you've got to be prepared that your mistakes are going to hurt people. And that's really hard. And I think particularly when you come back and you've had a baby, it, it, it means something very different, I think. So, yes, it is a big deal in the NHS at the moment. I think it's a particularly big deal after COVID because people have been working at a rate of intensity that they're not used to. And also, I think an awful lot of doctors through COVID were either sequestered into other specialties. Mm. So people who might have been doing orthopaedics, which is bad knees, mm-hmm. every order orthopedic person listening is going to be absolutely furious that I just said that but essentially it's joints you don't see a lot of death in that specialty because you know you're coming in for hip replacements you're coming in for like you're not you're not dealing with people who are at the end of their lives usually if you're an ICU doctor or if you're an acute medic you're much more used to dealing with that level of death although again the levels that we had during COVID were just off the charts and they were young people otherwise fit and healthy people and I think doctors talk to me about what they usually put around death to to protect themselves from it, so to give us a process. Not People not being able to be with their families, people not being able to have those last moments and not being able to facilitate that was really traumatising for those doctors. And if you were one of our doctors who was a consultant on the show, was a paediatrician, hadn't done adult medicine for probably 15 years, was on one of the COVID wards, was told, right, we need you on a COVID ward. So suddenly she was back working in adult medicine again, which is not her specialty, not something that she's done for a long time, dealing with people dying. And they're they're also not being very much that people could do. And I think that's another thing that medics found really, really hard is that 
they would be looking at otherwise fit and healthy people who should have had another 20, 30, 40 years of life and going, we don't know how to help you. And I think everybody's still processing that uh, because there hasn't been a break. You know, the hospital admissions and the rates at which people are working hasn't reduced after that. So, yes, I think COVID is a big deal without giving spoilers away. What happens to that character that you're talking about in the show happens with heartbreaking frequency. Well, first of all, I have to ask, even if you know at this stage, you're probably not able to tell me, will there be more maternal, please, please? We don't know. I genuinely don't know. It's that horrible bit where you're just waiting for people to make a decision. So I don't know. I hope so. We, we shall see. I've got a good feeling for you, Jackie, because it's, <laughs> it's gone down so well, hasn't it? Like the, the reception has been incredible. I think, I mean, I don't read the reviews. I, I try really hard not to. When it's all over, I sit with a cup of tea. I sit with a press pack and a big bit of chocolate cake. So if someone says something mean, I can you know, take a very large mouthful of chocolate cake whilst I think about that. But I think it's it's important to get a sense of your own, I guess your own criteria as an artist for what you wanted to achieve and whether you think that you've achieved it and allow reviews and other people's opinions on that to feed into that rather than dictate it. That is an important distinction for me. And I don't always find it. And I am finding the waiting to know where we've got a season two really tough. But you know, it's out of my hands. Well, I'm keeping everything crossed for you and indeed me, Jackie. So, <laughs> so I note that there is another show in development at the moment. Can you tell us anything about that? I don't think I can. Oh. No, I'm sorry. I'm working on two other things at the moment with the same team that I work with uh, to do maternal, which is wonderful. They're brilliant. And with a completely other, another brilliant, but very different um, set of people. And I can't talk about either of them except to say that it's such a privilege to suddenly be a writer because for 20 years, it's been my dream that I would be. And I do have to pinch myself a little bit that this is happening now. This is really what I do every day. Jackie, where can we follow you on the socials if we want to keep up to date with what you're doing next? And whether or not there'll be any more maternal, please, yes, please, ITV. I'm only on Twitter because I can't, I got locked out of my Instagram account when someone hacked it and I can't work out how to get back in again. I'm too old. <laughs> and and I gave up on Facebook a really long time ago as well. So I'm at Jackie HM, J-A-C. Q-U-I-H-M on Twitter. Jackie, thank you so much for taking the time to chat to me. It's been joyous. Oh, it's such a pleasure. I could have spent all day chatting to you. Hi, Hannah here. So as all listeners know, we're in a cost of living crisis and many people are struggling to feed themselves and their families, which means that they are also struggling to feed their pets. So today I am joined by Rachel Casey, Director of Canine Behaviour and Research at Dogs Trust, to find out more. Thank you, Rachel, for joining us. Hi, Hannah. Lovely to be with you. Perhaps we could start, just in case anybody doesn't know what Dogs Trust is, with a little pricey of who you are, when you started, what you do. Yeah, absolutely. So we're the UK's largest dogs charity. We obviously focus entirely on dogs. We have 22 rehoming centres across the UK and Ireland. We're probably known most for our rehoming work. So we are always looking for the best homes for dogs that find themselves in difficult circumstances or where people can't care for them anymore. But also we do a lot in terms of preventing problems as well. So we work a lot in terms of um, training dogs, providing behaviour advice, education in schools. So we're always trying to prevent the kinds of problems that end up with dogs being relinquished early. 
and you know to prevent the kind of problems that break down the relationship between dogs and their families a whole range of services and we're really focused not only on optimizing dog welfare in the UK and also worldwide internationally but supporting people who love dogs as well and I guess that's really what we're talking about today is kind of the support that we provide or is available in the sector for supporting dog owners, dog lovers who are really struggling to keep their pets in this really difficult time. I saw that back in September 2021, Dogs Trust has said that you were seeing a 35% rise in calls about giving up pets. And that was before our electricity and gas bills went up that was before before a lot of mortgages have gone up yeah that whole list trust thing let's not talk about that <laughs> so I was wondering if you could tell me what the situation you're looking at is now yeah we passed a really really sad milestone at the end of last year so in December 2022 we reached 50,000 calls of people wanting to hand over their dogs which is a massive massive increase for us and it's it's continuing and so in January this month we've already had 500 handover inquiries so a 55% increase from wow. last month so it's really really ramping up and you know Hannah it's so heartbreaking the people are calling us in floods of tears I because bet. they can't cope because you know dogs are family members they're you know a real part of their family they've relied on them through the pandemic they've had emotional support from them you know the big part of their lives and just because of money of not being able to afford to care for them they're they're having to go through this trauma of phoning us to hand over their dogs so yeah it's an absolute nightmare it's heartbreaking for people it's it's tough for our teams to be honest we've got a contact center a great team in our contact center who give people as much support as possible but it you know it's really hard for them because they're having call after call of people that are really emotionally distressed and you know how they can mm. cope to look after their dog I mean you'll have just seen my cat there because she can't leave us <laughs> yes. in all alone yes. <laughs> she has to be involved <laughs> I was in my house with two cats throughout the whole of lockdown and I genuinely think they saved my sanity I, I I don't know how I would have coped without them absolutely yeah we we did some research actually and one of the big things that came out of you know dogs and people in the pandemic was how much emotional support their people got from their dogs so, but also physical exercise it was the one yeah. thing that people could do is to go out and walk their dogs and they would go out and have a really good walk with their dog and I, I think that you know that was such an amazing lifesaver for so many people not our listeners but some un- kind of commentators will say that you shouldn't buy a pet if you can't afford it and you know people got dogs in lockdown and didn't know what they were doing and and all of that but I'm guessing that you're seeing a different sort of person coming forward now perhaps people who were a bit more financially secure in the past and now are really feeling the pinch absolutely it's it's largely change of circumstance so people you know, people are calling us who, for example, we had one lady call us, for example, who's rented a house where she had permission to have a dog, couldn't afford that rent anymore, was moving to somewhere else, had to stay in the same area so her kids could carry on going to the same school, but couldn't afford another house where they could 
where she could keep a dog and was having to give her her dog up. So it's that kind of situation or people having to take on a second job and not being able to Mm. um, look after their dog or or people that have have had an income, but that income is now not enough to feed their family as well as their dog. And they're having to make almost impossible choices. So, yeah, absolutely. I think the key thing is people really struggling reach out for help early because you know as a charity we are not judgmental at all we're not going to worry about why people have got a dog or when they got a dog we're, we're, we're here to help and try and offer them support but also practical help we're, we're, we're trying to do things like offer low-cost training and behavior services we've got food banks so as well as helping people that really can't keep their dog we're, we're really trying to focus on keeping dogs with their families and offering as much support we can to to enable that in the same way that people will feed their children and go hungry themselves i mean people will yeah. feed their pets yeah yeah at the detriment to their own diet won't they oh absolutely yes and i you know we've had some food banks at some of our centers and a lot the other charities have been doing that as well and i think you know people are coming along and and telling stories about how they've you know they've not eaten for a while they're so grateful to have free dog food because it enables them to spend the Mm. money on eating themselves you know it's it's absolutely tragic it really is one of the things that seems more obvious and this was is with all animals spreading outside of dogs as well is that you buy them a cheaper form of food but that's not without its problems is it yeah yeah, I think I think it depends on the dog or the cat. Some, you know, change of diet is okay. If you're going to change diet, the key thing is to try and do it gradually. So mix the two together and really look out for any signs that there is, you know, tummy upset or that the appetite is changing, you know, any vomiting. And if you've if your dog has had any kind of issues before with tummy upsets or anything, I would always check with your vet first before changing diet. And there's things to look out for. Sometimes you might think that it will save money to give your dog scraps, but there's quite a lot of human food that's actually toxic for dogs. So, you know, to be be careful of just going down the line of assuming that's going to be okay, because things that are okay for people like you know, some random things like onions and that kind of thing have got chemicals in which are actually toxic to dogs. I would just be really careful and think through carefully. I know people are doing absolutely everything they can to try and make sure they can eat and their dog can eat. But just think carefully about before making kind of snap decisions about sudden changes. Okay, so if we've got anyone listening that is struggling, either they're struggling with feeding their dog or they're they're struggling with finding housing with their dog or even maybe with vet's bills, what, what advice would you give them? For dogs, absolutely. I would call our contact centre. We obviously can't work miracles, but we do everything we possibly can. So people in a circumstance where they can't keep their dog anymore, we will obviously do our best to try and find a new home for them. But our real priority at the moment is to try and keep dogs in their homes. So if there's things that we can do to help we will do so we've got for example a really low cost dog schools we're offering and behavior advice at very low cost because quite often there's a there's a combination of things that people you know are struggling with maybe the training of the and behavior of their dog 
and they can't afford to get advice or, or help with that. So, you know, we're, we're, we're trying to pick up the things where the additional cost is just that one step too far mm. for people, as well as things like the, the, the food banks. But also, you know, one of the things that we know a real concern for people is veterinary costs. So we're also looking to see if we can if we can help with those kinds of one off costs that might help people to keep the dog in their home. So I, I would say, you know, first off, give us a call. And if we can help, uh, we will do. Great. The other thing is for dog owners and non-dog owners, we have a massive demand on our services at the moment. So we're really looking for help and support for people who can foster dogs because our centres are quite full. We've got waiting lists of mm. people that are because of the demand of relinquishing the dogs. So if anybody can feel like they've got space in their homes and their hearts and their pockets to take on an additional dog or to temporarily look after a dog, please also get in touch to help if they feel like they can help us with fostering. That would be absolutely amazing. Yeah, that seems like a really worthwhile thing to do. Um, do you do you do cat training? <laughs> because these two are out of control. That's one thing people can do. They can get in touch with you about fostering. How can I, as someone who can afford to feed my pet, help you best? Is it to drop food with you? Is it to drop money with you? Is it to volunteer? What's the best help? that our listeners can can give you any of those things so you know financial support for us or other charities is always really welcome particularly at times like now you know our services are massively under pressure so financial support is really really valuable but people you know dropping food into the buckets at supermarkets or supporting the food banks and dropping in food into them that's always really 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 helpful and people's time as well I mentioned the fostering before but any kind of volunteering even if people have got a small amount of time to help with you know small tasks in our centers or helping with washing or that, that kind of thing as well people's time is also really valuable for us so if people can offer some some support then give us a call and we we can try and chat to you about the about the best you know the most useful yeah. thing great but Trust.org.uk. I have one more question, Rachel, and it's it's more to do with your director of canine behaviour and research <laughs> more than yeah. anything else. Now, I, I don't have a dog because I don't think I could give it the time and the energy that it deserves. On the other hand, I love dogs and dogs really love me. In fact, I would say a bit too much. <laughs> my best friend's dog literally bowls me over every time I go into the house it's very hard to stay on my feet he's so excited and my brother's dog wets herself every time I walk (laughs) into the room and not in a scared way in a delighted Uh way excited way What, what is it how can I help people by being less I don't know, is dog nip a word? Like, I am the catnip equivalent to dog. You're probably exciting. The more you are kind of active, talkative, looking at them, giving them attention, they probably see you as somebody who's just kind of nice and, you know, loves dogs. So they're they're reacting to you. And jumping up is really common. And particularly, you know, with little dogs, people tend to ignore it. But with big dogs, like you say, they kind of bowl you over. So I mean, the, the key thing with that is that they, they learn to jump up because they learn that when they jump up, it works to get, you know, obviously your face is at the top of your body yeah. and they want to get close to you. And that when they jump up, it works to get your attention because you kind of 
you know, you, you may be partly bowled over, but you'll certainly react to them. Yeah. The key thing for changing that is changing the consequence. So if you only say hello to the dog when they're four feet are on the floor and you don't say hello to them when they're jumping up because they really value your attention so much, they will learn to only say hello to you when their feet are on the floor. So it's kind of it's change for dogs. It's always working out what they're trying to achieve by their behavior and changing the consequence. So you so you alter their behavior. Great. I tell my brother that. What kind of dog is she? She's a Jack Russell. Okay. Oh, she's absolutely delightful, but she properly is hysterical. (laughs) It's like it's like a famous person has walked in or something. She is literally (laughs) beside herself when I arrive. (laughs) But that's a great thing about dogs, isn't it? They always make you feel special and and loved. So yeah, yeah. Do you have dogs? Yeah, I do. I've got two dogs. Trust dogs. One is um, a spaniel cross and the other is a terrier cross. So like your brother's dog, sort of Jack Russell type. Go on to our website. There's always a listing of the dogs that are available for adoption. Yeah, we're always looking for people to adopt the dogs that have come into us. And we've got, you know, lots of dogs in the centres at the moment. They're always looking for their forever homes. So, yeah, please get in touch. Have a look at the the website and uh, give us a call if you feel like you can take one of our dogs. That'd be great. Rachel, this has been excellent. It's been really nice to talk to you. Thank you, Hannah. You play ball like a girl! Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks. Welcome to Jenny off the blocks, that time of the week where we shine bright like a diamond as we discuss all things women's sport. And I'm not referring to a dodgy 80s tune by Hoddle and Waddle, or indeed women's sport, to be honest. I just wanted to say fair play to Rihanna, who performed the iconic Super Bowl halftime show last Sunday, debuting, as a shite newspaper would say, her baby bump on stage. I'm not sure if that makes her the first pregnant woman to preside over said iconic show, but I do think... Is pretty bloody cool. I'll follow that up with massive congratulations to Katie Archibald and Eleanor Barker, names you will no doubt recognise from the world of track cycling. Archibald is a two-time Olympic gold medalist, four-time world champion. Barker has won one Olympic gold medal and five world championship titles. And between them, they now have a staggering 30 European titles after picking up the gold for the Madison at the European Championships at the weekend. That brings Archibald's medal haul for these championships to three and Barkers to two and GB took silver in the team sprint as well. They've been racing together for 10 years now and what a partnership. Overall Great Britain finished the championships with 12 medals which saw them finish just behind Germany who had 13. Now on to some less good news from the world of men's football because isn't it bloody always? Sorry that is very lazy for me. There are lots of great things about men's football. Hashtag read my book. But ensuring there are consequences for players who do terrible things apparently is not one of them. I'm talking about David Goodwillie, worst name ever, who you may remember we spoke about on the podcast last year after Scottish side Wraith Rovers signed him and faced a public backlash by a number of people, including our excellent friend Val McDermid. McDermid, a lifelong Wraith Rovers fan, withdrew her sponsorship of the club's shirt after Goodwillie was signed. And the reason for that was because Goodwillie, though the case was not pursued in the criminal courts due to insufficient evidence he was found responsible for the rape of a woman in the civil court in 2016 a decision which was upheld after an appeal in 2017 
After subsequently being binned off by Wraith Rovers, Goodwillie was announced in the starting lineup for non-league side Radcliffe FC last week as he made his debut for the club. His signing had not been announced prior to this, so you rather think the club knew that this might prompt some robust discussion, shall we say, which it did indeed. A day later, the club announced that Goodwillie had left and admitted his signing was a, and I quote, significant misstep. The club said, We've always been about second chances and have been part of many players and staff members' rehabilitation along that journey. We've always given people a chance to improve their life and found support in this endeavour. When the club were presented with David Goodwillie, that same logic was applied, but in this case it's clear that was a significant misstep and our due diligence should have been of a much higher standard. I mean, I, I'm not against the idea of rehabilitation, etc. Mick has actually just recorded an excellent interview with Joe Todd of Respect UK who works in this very field, but that sounds like an informed decision to me rather than a, and I quote, misstep. So I have to ask the question, as I did of Wraith Rovers at the time, what about this went wrong from your perspective? Was it in fact the criticism you faced? Because apologies don't really work like that, do they? Shrugs. Let's move on to some more questionable judgments from the world of football, this time in the women's game. It's not often you'll hear me say I agree with USA forward Alex Morgan. You know how I feel about her fucking tea drinking. But on this occasion, well, she's got a point. She was speaking this week ahead of the She Believes Cup, which gets underway on the 16th of February. And side note, we're not in it this year, as in England. We've actually not competed in it since 2020, but we did win it once. So it's a tournament that I usually expect us to be part of. Truthfully, I I don't know why we're not. Anyway, Morgan was reacting to news of a potential sponsorship deal for this year's Women's World Cup in New Zealand between FIFA and the Saudi Arabia Tourism Board. I mean, you actually cannot make this shit up. Of course, we're going to come back to that thorny issue of LGBTQ plus rights here, compounded somewhat by the fact that a fuckton of the women competing at international level in football are openly gay. And just to be clear on this, same-sex sexual activity is punishable by death in Saudi Arabia. But let's also talk about women's rights in Saudi Arabia. In Saudi Arabia, she believes, as of 2017, that she can drive a car that she can vote as of 2011, that as of 2012 she can compete in the Olympics for the first time. I mean, we are talking about very, very recent developments and fair play, the direction of travel is a positive one, but Jesus fucking Christ. It's hard to think of a more inappropriate sponsor. And as Morgan points out, the Saudi Arabia women's team was established just a couple of years ago. Women have only been allowed to attend football matches in Saudi Arabia since 2017. So is this about empowering women or is it about promoting further wealth generation in the country and indeed its growing economic interest in football? See also Newcastle United. Morgan said, I think it's bizarre that FIFA has looked to have a Visit Saudi sponsorship for the Women's World Cup when I would not even be supported and accepted in that country. So I just don't understand it. Pretty much everyone has spoken out against that because morally, it just doesn't make sense. Like I begrudgingly said, I agree with Alex Morgan. That's all for me this week. I'll be back next time with more women's sport. Welcome to Rated or Dated. Hannah, which film did we watch this week that Jack Monroe should maybe have had a nose at before making spurious claims about flannels? (laughs) (laughs) This week we watched Odd Couple Comedy, Come Road Movie, Come Festive Flick. 
planes, trains and automobiles. Released in America in November 1987 and here in the UK in February 1988. People would never believe how many attempts it took me to say that sentence. (laughs) It was written and directed by John Hughes, who, and feel free to correct me if I'm wrong, I think has failed to get a rated for any of his films that we've watched so far. Incorrect. Home Home Alone. Alone. Ah, okay. Fair enough. The film was seen as a departure from his usual teenage romance angst fair, which certainly improves its chances of getting a rated here, I have to say. Set over three days in the run-up to and including Thanksgiving, it's become an annual viewing tradition for many American families and has a 92% rating on Rotten Tomatoes. Contemporaneous reviews all seem to use the same words, just in a different order. Mature, smart, warm, heartfelt, funny and chemistry. Like many a Hughes film, a test audience had already had their say and the two main characters had undergone a bit of work to make them more likeable, as if John Candy wasn't the very definition of likeable in all circumstances. Made on a budget of $15 million, it made 50 at the box office. A proposed remake was mooted in 2020, although despite a number of people reportedly being interested, including Drew Barrymore and Adam Sandler, I can find no evidence that it's actually going to happen. Oh, I just had a little bit of sick in my mouth about Mm. that. (laughs) Had either of you seen this before? Yeah, I got it on DVD. Seen it loads. I can't remember if I have or not. I want to keep my powder dry for at least the first 10 seconds of this. So uh, we'll maybe come back to that. I actually can't remember. Okay. I saw it once when it came out on video. So when I was a teenager and I hadn't seen it since. Although that, I have to say, that wasn't because I didn't like it at the time. I did like Mm -hmm. it. I don't know. I just never watched it again. Let's get to the plot. New York marketing man Neil, played by Steve Martin, is struggling to get home to Chicago for Thanksgiving to see his wife, who I'm just going to say here because there probably isn't another point to say it, thinks staying up until 10pm is late. (laughs) That is so funny. (laughs) He also has three kids. But things keep getting in Neil's way. Things that include, but are not limited to, a client, the weather, red tape, crooks, breakdowns, the other sort of breakdowns, a car fire and Davidson Hubbins. (laughs) But either good or bad luck, you decide, has thrust a travelling companion upon him, talkative showering salesman Dell, who is played by John Candy. Will Neil make it home in time for Thanksgiving? Will we ever find out why Dell appears to have a happy marriage and not have gone home for eight years? How did those tyres survive the blaze? (laughs) We get answers to all of them, except the tyres one, in a pretty tight 92 minutes. So I want to start by asking you, who is the best and worst person, do you think, for you to be stuck on this journey with? Well, in real life? Yeah. I wouldn't inflict myself on anyone. In this, oh, that, that's in a this very capacity. sweet answer, Jen. Honestly, I wouldn't. I, I, the best I said about lockdown, so I'll kind of use it. My best friend Vera, I do very well out of being in her company in that kind of situation. She would do very badly out of being in mine. <laughs> oh, that's Me- very honest. Uh, Gary would be the best person to be stuck in this situation with. If anyone could drive a car that's just recently been on fire, it would be my husband. The worst person. 
Oh, Jack Monroe should have used the fucking flannel as well, wouldn't she? <laughs> I would say the worst person would just be anyone except my friend Laura, and the best person would be my friend Laura. She is very suited to this sort of mm-hmm. thing. She's very good at getting us out of holes. We went to a Glastonbury together that was like completely washed out and loads of people went home, but not us. This has actually sort of happened to me though. In real life, I have had to share a hotel room with a stranger. Oh, I've had to do that. Can you tell yours first? I was coming home from a funeral because that is my fucking lot in life. Mm-hmm. This was Classic about... Friday night for Hannah. <laughs> I would say it was about 12 years ago. I was in a hire car. It wasn't even my car. My car had been written off two days before. Someone had driven in the back of me. It wasn't my best week, I have to say. Anyway, I was driving back from this funeral and it started snowing. Right, and you know what we're like in the snow as a nation. Like everyone just drives like mm-hmm. idiots, and almost immediately, the entire of the M11 got snowed up with traffic, and it just didn't move for hours. And I was really near a junction, and I just thought, "Fuck it, I'm just going to go up for 200 yards or whatever up the, the hard shoulder, and I'm just going to get off this road and see if there's another way." And it turns out there wasn't, but there was a travel lodge. So I uh, stopped and asked if I could have a room, and they said yes, I could have the last room. And I was just paying and another woman came in and said, can I have a room? And they said, sorry, we just gave the last room away. And she burst into tears and I just felt really shit. And I said, would you like to share the room with me? And she looked a bit weirded out. But then she said, yes. And then later I heard her on the phone to her husband going, well, what does a murderer even look like? (laughs) (laughs) She also didn't like my planes, trains and automobile jokes. But yeah, it was a bit weird. Anyway, we didn't sleep in the same bed together. So I was in South America, in Bolivia, and I'd mistimed when I would get to the small town I had to reach before I could travel further on into the jungle to look after wildcats. And I ended up getting there at three in the morning with nowhere to stay. And so, you know, not great. My Spanish isn't isn't great. So there were no taxis, there was nothing. And so I just hailed a motorbike. <laughs> the one road past, hailed him, <laughs> said in my pidgin Spanish, do you know where any hotels are? And trusted the gods. And he, he rode off with me and my stuff on the back. And he deposited me in... A, it wasn't salubrious. That would not be the word you would ever use about it. And basically, yeah, it was just sort of stayed in a room with two other women. Oh, I thought you were going to say him. No. And I thought, this, that's, that's a one-night stand. That's not staying in a room no. with strangers. Uh, 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 no, that didn't happen. I, I made friends with them via biscuits because I had some biscuits and then I went to sleep clutching all of my things. <laughs> so, yeah, it wasn't the best night's sleep I've ever had, to be honest with you. When I was cycling across America, there was like this little town that I had to stop in. And uh, like I wasn't planning to stop there, but for, what I don't know, weather or whatever, I had to stop. And there's only one Airbnb in town. And I went to the tourist information centre and it was like already taken there. Like, oh, a woman on a bike has already got it soz you can go and stay in the fire department because they have like voluntary fire departments in the states which i find like a weird concept anyway so i was like bedding down in this fucking cockroach infested fire department and this woman rocks up and she's like hello i'm deb i'm the other lady with a bike the tourist information office told me about you do you want to come and like share because i've got this whole house it seems a bit silly come and have the other room so that's what i did oh we've all been there that's amazing so Planes, trains and automobiles. Jen, get your powder wet. Well, I don't know if I've watched this before because I think I might have started watching it before thinking that I would like it having watched Home Alone because he kind of does the same thing in Home Alone. It's a similar story, yeah. Mm. 
And I think that I didn't like it and I abandoned it. And But you I love think, John Candy, don't you? You're I love Uncle John Book Candy. Mm. I love John Candy. I think he's great. Like, who doesn't? Only a monster would not like John Candy, right? I found it boring. And I boring. think that I watched it before mm. and found it boring and was like, nah, not into it. There you go. So much happens. <laughs> I just found it dull. Fair, fair enough. It's a subjective uh, little old section, isn't it? I would suggest that John Candy is in, in, oh, hugely likeable in everything that he's in. Yeah, you know, you. Cool Runnings, what a film, and Uncle Buck. All of all of the John Uncle Candy. Buck, films. I fucking love. Even Uncle like he's in he's in the Blues Brothers for two minutes. Brilliant, orange whips all around. Excellent mm. stuff. Oh, he's brilliant. He's so good. That whole poker, poker, poker shit in Home <laughs> Alone incredible. is the funniest thing in Home yeah. Alone for me. But his character is so annoying in this Del is so annoying and although Neil is really cold and brittle and obviously the joy is that the effect that they have on each other this lovely friendship of two middle-aged men thrown together and it is for me joyous not you know it's lovely but oh no I am oddly on Neil's side for so much of it and it makes me upset with myself because I want to be on John Candy's side but if someone I was sharing a room with went through his fucking sinus dance They'd be out the window. They'd be out of the window. Snoring can deal with. That sign is clearing. I'm watching it for the umpteenth time on the TV. Hang on, I get me notebook out. (laughs) Yeah, take notes, Hannah. Um, Actually, we're recording it. Listen back to this before we go to Rome. And even just hearing it through the telly makes me feel a little bit physically sick. So yeah, Dell's so Mm. annoying. He is, you know, and obviously he's got his big heart. But when he's all like, I do nothing but try to please people. I'm like, Really? No, you've got no self-awareness there, buddy. I 100% agree with that. He's an annoying character and uh, and I would be 1,000% Neil in this. And, I, <laughs> and I'm not ashamed to say it. he's an arsehole, but like, that, I, that would be me. I'm I think he's delightful. That. Really? <laughs> yeah. I mean, he Can we get a refund? Really... I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> he is really, really, really annoying. Yes, I get that. Hannah, you would but just John Candy is so delightful. None of it comes from a bad place, no. does it? None of it comes from a bad place. It just comes from like a lack of self awareness. And later you you learn like he's he's been socialised for eight years. He's been by himself. He's not had hmm. like anybody else to consider. Like what? That. So he's gone he's feral. Lonely. Is that what you suggested? He's, gone, he's feral. gone feral. Yeah, he's grey garden. <laughs> he's like just be- become this person who nobody sees. So he doesn't. No, sort of, but he interacts no, with loads of people all of the time, and he is he is on charming. a really shallow level. He is charming on a really shallow level. But, yeah, but as soon as you scratch the surface, he's just really annoying. As is Neil, but in a different way. What does Neil do that's annoying? He's a bit of a prick, isn't he? Well, yeah, yeah. No, he's, he's not yes. really cold, annoying, though. But what I agree does he do that. that's annoying? I don't think he's particularly annoying. Mm, I don't He's either. just not very pleasant. Yeah. Exactly. I think there's a big difference there. Maybe annoying's not the right word then, yeah. I he's, you certainly don't warm to him. I find it much easier to warm to Dell. Maybe that says more about me, just as a, a lonely human being. Well, no, I was just going to say, I mean, he's got a backstory, hasn't he? And, and Neil's appears to be, I don't really know. What is Neil's backstory? He's worked too much. He never sees his kids. He's a bit of a prick. Mm. Like, So, yeah. yeah, of course you want more mm. to John don't. Candy. Because as you say, there's a reason for it. But fucking hell, like, I don't think I'd get to finding out what his backstory was. <laughs> I certainly wouldn't want to share a bedroom with him. I certainly wouldn't want to share a bathroom with him. Oh, see, yeah, that's just, that's 
unpleasant mm. you know for all that steve martin's a bit cold and not very friendly like if i was having to share with someone i didn't know i'd rather that than like the massacre of the wet towels in a tiny bathroom yeah. and st- like it's just that that it's not even like a self-awareness that's selfishness that's that's rude i think that's basic anyway, hygiene it's basically it's, <laughs> it's like basic hygiene put your socks back on <laughs> but also i think it's quite an interesting study in that do you think our personalities change when the difference between the two of them is neil is desperately trying to get somewhere and for dell he's not really trying to get anywhere there's no time pressure for dell and it's the sadness of the, there's no one waiting for him anymore. And that is really heartrending. And it is delivered beautifully. And you do end up falling in love with John Candy and very pleased that he's got somewhere to go for Thanksgiving. Although it isn't made clear that he's allowed to stay. But <laughs> with Neil, Neil is trying to get home to people who really want to see him. So there's an added pressure that might make him even mm. more prickly that Dell doesn't have. Yeah. I suppose yeah. you could say that that maybe that's you know if you were being more sympathetic, I suppose you could say this is a man who works really hard, who is you know under a degree of pressure to provide for his family or whatever, and you know maybe doesn't get to spend as much time with them as he'd like to, and this is the time that actually he really really feels that pressure to to be with them. So yeah, mm. I think I think you're right, Mick potentially just really excited to see a woman because there are absolutely none in his fucking office <laughs> welcome to the 80s <laughs> you can tell it's the 80s because kevin bacon <laughs> it is again like home alone another one of those films that just couldn't be made now from the point of view of one or two phone calls mm-hmm. or apple pay or whatever would have solved about 95 percent of the problems that are in yeah. it Maybe I sentimentalise films like that, but you just can't make stuff like that anymore. Technology and the internet has ruined so many like plot points. You'd have to put so many barriers to explain how they can't get out mm. of this problem. It really amps up the nostalgia, definitely. And I'm a big fan of nostalgia, so I, I enjoy that. Are we going to talk about the female characters? <laughs> I was going to say that's my next question, my only other question. Steve Martin, question mark. John Candy, question mark. Women question mark <laughs> it's a good set of notes there i'm excited for rome if that's the notes his wife is um like she almost seems to come out of a catalog labeled generic wife mm, circa yeah. 1980 whatever i said this was Eight, 88 87 88 yeah yeah, yeah she's, she is she's not got much going for her well not much going on really she's not got much to do She's got three kids to look after. She's probably quite busy doing That's that. That's why she's tired at 10 o'clock at night, Jen. Well, fucking hell, I'm tired <laughs> at 10 o'clock at night. Me too, and I don't have children. Do You don't describe it as staying up until 10 o'clock at night, though, do you? Just to be clear. No, I, I say I'm going to bed at half past nine. Because <laughs> I'm, I'm too tired to keep my eyes open anymore. But what other women are there? I mean, there's the woman on the desk who tells him he's, he's fucked, which is quite enjoyable. Oh. The pregnant girl who can carry a bag? I mean, I'm really struggling to think of other female characters in there. I mean, so far, so John Hughes, right? Isn't this, <laughs> yeah, like, <totally. laughs> rather par for the course? Absolutely. Yeah, but that's it. Yeah. That's it. It's it's a man's movie about two men. And that's not to say that you can't enjoy a movie about middle-aged men finding friendship. Like, who doesn't love Sideways? This, this is that genre mm. of unexpected buddies. Do you think they will stay friends? No. Quite hard to stay friends in those days, isn't it? Like, you don't have Facebook. You, you haven't got phones, as as discussed. That's the, the reason why the film works. So, like, how the fuck are they going to stay friends? I don't think they will stay friends, as in they'll be hanging out together. 
but I think that he will go there for Thanksgiving because this film was set at Christmas. I think it would be different. But Thanksgiving has this real sort of community. People have people round. People invite Hmm. people round for Thanksgiving. No one seems to have a nice family. So why wouldn't they invite the the lonely guy they know at Thanksgiving? That's what people do. I don't know. Maybe for the sake of their bathrooms. (laughs) Yeah, maybe. (laughs) Not enough flannels to dry yourself on in here, is there? (laughs) Yeah, I think Neil's wife will continue to send him Christmas cards on behalf of Neil. <laughs> yeah. is what I think, I think yeah. Jenna's nailed that. Absolutely nailed yeah. it. I still love it, by the way. Did it make you laugh, Jen? Not loads. Not as much as I'd have hoped for a film with Steve Martin and John Candy in it, because I, I, I really like Steve Martin as well. I find Steve Martin usually to be like very charming and uh, enjoyable to watch and... I really, you know, as discussed, really like John Candy, but I did, it didn't make me laugh as much as, as I thought it would. Mickey, what are your favourite bits? My favourite bits? I I like the... <laughs> because I was watching the, the hotel sharing scene and I'm like, this is quite homophobic, isn't it? But it does still make me laugh because it's the bit that I remember. That made me laugh as well, Mick. It made, okay, there you go. It's the bit that made Jen laugh. Is it homophobic? It's it's very macho, isn't it? It's that, oh, I'm not gay, kind of, these are mm. pillows and all this. Oh, we're sharing a bed together. It's very... And I, I said to Gary, is it homophobic or is it just that they're very macho or like that... I don't know if it, it is. Is it that some people would genuinely not want to... Share a bed with a stranger. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, but the way it's done and the time yeah, it's okay, set fair enough. makes me a bit like... Mm. I don't know that there are standout lines. I do love the bit where Steve Martin absolutely loses it after, because he's had to walk back to the airport after the hire car and yeah. he just does that incredible, awful tirade at a woman who is not at fault for any of this and then she gets yeah. the last laugh. That is absolutely brilliant. And he only has one shoe, which, as we <laughs> as we know, is intrinsically funny. Comic gold, right there, right there. Yeah, he's just got his one shoe on. And the bit that makes me laugh is when it all absolutely goes to shit and they're just sat on the trunk that has caused so much mayhem in the middle of the road and they just look behind them and both of them clock that everything's on fire. (laughs) But it doesn't register and then it kind of registers and it's just such a disaster that all they can do is laugh and I, I really I really enjoy that bit. I really like the scene where they get pissed on the miniatures that Dell's all the miniatures that Dell has stolen. However, it is the bit that has John Candy doing a somewhat dubious mm. Jamaican accent. But that bit aside, I didn't spot a great deal of stuff that made me wince, which quite often exists in 80s comedy. There is usually a couple of words that you're like, oh my God, yeah. I can't believe that's in there. It is no trading places. Oh. I mean, it's no trading places, but it's also <laughs> no trading places. Agreed. Do you know what's really cool is that this film is 35 years old and Steve Martin looks exactly the same age in Only Murders in the Building. I couldn't believe how young he looked. I was really struck by how young he looked. He looks exactly the same after after watching uh, Only Murders in the Building. Yeah. Okay. I think we've probably got to the right point. Planes, trains, and automobiles. Rated or dated? Rated. Jen. Oh, I don't. I mean, I don't really have a. Why are you thinking? I'm going to say rated. I didn't. I didn't really love it, but I don't think it's particularly dated. So, I'll, I'll give it a rated, but a sort of unenthusiastic one. She's been bored into a rated. <laughs> Basically, yes. <laughs> what can we expect next week? 
Hannah, I gave Mickey a choice over this and she voted for this over <laughs> nil by mouth. Uh, I was like, oh none God. of us can cope with nil by mouth right oh now, Jen. I, I saw that. I saw that in the cinema and I came out and I was traumatised. I stood in the car park just going, what the fuck? I've never seen it and I've never seen Groundhog Day, which is what we're going to be watching okay. instead next week. I think it's the best choice for our sanity. Standard issue for all women.